This is Living Your Big Bold Life Podcast, and I am your host, Bet Lucas. I am a mom of six crazy kids. I work as a VP in a fast-paced industry, and I've been on a health journey. But what does living your big, bold life even mean? Living boldly is having the courage to finally listen and do what your heart has been trying to tell you all along. Maybe it's to take back your health, write the book, go for the job, run the race. And I'm here to help you listen to that voice and to remind you to be you boldly. The world needs you. Hello, welcome to Living Your Big Bold Life Podcast. I am your host, Bette Lucas. Today's show is going to be perfect if you have wanted to try intermittent fasting but want to learn a little bit more. Or maybe you're an experienced intermittent faster and you want to hear from a medical professional that supports it. Today's guest meets both of those criteria. Also, today's guest is experienced in the diabetic community. So if you or a friend or a family member, are struggling with a recent diagnosis of type 2 diabetes, or you've been told by your physician or health professional that you have prediabetes, today might be an eye-opening episode just for you. Sarah Cole is a nurse, and she is joining us all the way from New Zealand. And her primary treatment plan for her diabetic patients is, guess what? Yes, you guessed it, intermittent fasting. She walks us through the results she's seen through her case studies, the results she's seen personally on her own health journey, and much more. Today is a power-packed episode and is truly one not to miss. Also, I've been talking a lot about my word for the month, strong. I decided that there were a lot of S words going around this month. Should, stress, scale, skinny. All words that seem to come up this time of year. And you know what? I'm done with those S words. And I was going to encourage you to be done with them too. And I'm finding that the more I keep the word strong in the forefront of my mind, the better and healthier choices I make and the better results I get. Whereas if I keep focusing on those other S words, sometimes the results I get aren't as good. So a few things that I repeat to myself and I thought maybe could be helpful for you as well is I repeat things like I move my body to be strong. I prioritize my sleep to be strong. I drink only once a week this month to be strong. I eat healthy foods to be strong. I reduce preventable stress and shooting all over my to be strong. Do you like that? Shoulding. Maybe one of my lines needs to be, I intermittent fast to be strong. And I like to repeat often that you are worthy of things that last. You are worthy of more than fast. So we're going to forget the scale obsession. We're going to forget skinny. Instead, let's all be in a pursuit of a healthy and strong heart, mind, and body. Because ironically, I think when we do that, that's when the results show up. So if you haven't picked a word for 2021, Maybe your word is strong too, because maybe you need to let go of some of those S words like I did, because truly those S words are not serving you. Remember, even though I'm interviewing a medical professional today, today's episode is not medical advice. I cannot wait for you to hear from Sarah. Here she is. I live in just outside of Auckland, the largest city in New Zealand, and I live here in a lovely little community with uh, my husband and my two children who are seven and four. And um, I've been nursing now for, must be coming up 
18 years. So always in the community. I work in a GP clinic, a doctor's clinic in the community. And uh, so always work with sort of chronic conditions and a lot of diabetes. In New Zealand, we see a lot of type 2 diabetes and, of course, obesity-related health conditions. So back in, now when was it? I think 2018, I um, stumbled across intermittent fasting as a way to improve my health and lose some weight. I'd gained a bit of weight um, having had my two babies and my blood pressure was creeping up. And I didn't want to be on pills so young, so started looking into intermittent fasting and um, saw amazing results. Within a month or two, my blood pressure was back to normal um, of starting fasting, and I lost um, close to 40 pounds in the first eight months of intermittent fasting. So sort of halfway through my journey of fasting, I started to do some research and look more in depth at the science behind it because I felt that it was a really good answer for a lot of my patients. I sort of traditionally didn't love dealing with type 2 diabetes. I always felt that what we were doing didn't really help. Patients always ended up needing more and more medication to control their diabetes and it was very, very rare that diet and exercise could control it long term for for most of our patients. So when I started doing all that research, I realized that this could be our answer. And that's when I started working with it with my patients. Wow. I love this so much because you you saw the benefits in your own journey. And I, like you, have heard so many people who have been frustrated because they feel that type 2 diabetes, there's nothing you really can do. Yeah, you you go on a diet, exercise more, but this, the patients still need more and more insulin. So who was your first kind of thought leader or medical professional out there that was talking about intermittent fasting that got you kind of excited to explore this more? So I think um, the first book I read was Jim Stevens' Delay, Don't Deny. Um, and I love that book because it's ve- it sort of speaks to you in a non-medical way. And I really, mm-hmm. I like her, the way she writes and, and presents all the facts and the science, but presents it in an easy read. So I often recommend her books to my patients who are not medical because they're just easy to read. Um, but from her, I went on to Jason Fung and his Uh, The Obesity Code, his book, The Obesity Code, was what really opened my eyes. And I just felt almost guilty that what I'd been doing with my patients for so long was so wrong. And what he sort of suggested and what his book talks about made so much sense. So he was sort of my founding medical person, I guess, that I based a lot of my research around and looked into all the studies and things based off his book. And Sarah, I know most people have heard the term diabetes. You know, most of us have heard it. What is truly, what is diabetes? And how do you explain it to someone, maybe a lay person like me, a non-medical person, if if they've been recently diagnosed or if they're pre-diabetic, what does diabetes mean? So I guess before I knew all about fasting and read all the science around um, insulin and things, traditionally we were taught that diabetes is too much sugar in the blood and the high sugar obviously over time causes damage to a lot of systems in the body. So right down from your eyes, your feet, 
um, your heart, sort of everything. It affects everything. So we always taught diabetes is too much sugar. This is type 2 diabetes. And But actually now I realise that type 2 diabetes, yes, there's too much sugar, but it's because there's always been too much insulin. So your insulin's so high, your body stops listening to it. It's a little bit the boy who cried wolf. You know, we stop listening to that insulin. And so the sugar does go high, but it goes high because your insulin stopped working. I think that's super fascinating because I think it also makes sense why all of a sudden the light bulb was going off when you're saying this is why us thinking that was dictating how we approached diabetes and now kind of this new bold thought process. So you wanted to start trying intermittent fasting in your practice. You're a nurse. You've been frustrated. You've seen your type 2 diabetes patients grow but also not get better. How did you start that that process? Because I'm assuming you got some pushback at first. Well, I was quite lucky at the time. I was working in a clinic with some young GPs uh-huh. and, you know, they're a little bit impressionable and they sort of like to go with new, new ideas. So um, I simply had a chat with them about what I'd found and what I was seeing in my results. And, you know, I sort of gave them some information and some of the studies to look at, but I sort of asked, can I start doing this with some of our patients, our type 2 diabetics? And they were more than happy. Once they'd sort of seen the literature and heard about what was happening, more than happy to give me the okay to start that in my practice. Oh, I love to hear that. It's it's so exciting to see kind of some more forward thinking. So how did that play out? Where did you start? So let's say the first patient came to see you, Sarah, or or you had a few patients you had in mind. How did you approach that with them? And did you get pushback from them? Did they were they like, what are you what are you talking about, Sarah? <laughs> yeah, well, I was quite lucky actually. And and my first patient was a newly diagnosed type two diabetic. He'd come in I think his optometrist had sent him. He had a few bleeds in the back of his eye and we did some bloods and blood pressures and his HbA1c came back at 108. Um, Now, our readings are slightly different to America and I can't quite remember what that converts to, but it was very, very high. And I sat down and had a chat with him. He was sort of a little bit in shock. He didn't realise he had type 2 diabetes. He brought his wife with him and I talked him through all that insulin stuff that Dr. Fungtuck talks about and the reason behind his high blood sugars. Um, Doctor started him on metformin twice a day, but we also started him fasting. So we did a fast, I think I started him 16 hours, but very quickly he went up to a one meal a day fast. And within three months, his HbA1c had halved. Now, we don't really see a result like that with metformin alone. So we knew that the fasting was helping. And by the end of the, I think it was about eight months with him, we managed to get him off one of his metformins. So he was on half a dose just in the morning and his blood sugar was back to normal. He wasn't morbidly obese. This patient was overweight, but not significantly so. He lost about eight kilos in that first first sort of maybe three to six months. Um, but yeah, he just was amazed the difference he felt. He said, I didn't realize I felt unwell until I felt well again. And that was when he realized the difference fasting made for him. Wow. And I love that 
you know, you didn't start, you started him on a 16-8 and he kind of naturally went to a one meal a day. Do most of the patients that you see, do most of them kind of start at a 16-8? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the patients I see, in, especially in one of the clinics I work in, are very morbidly obese. They often have very, very poor HbA1c results. So they're they're pretty unwell people. And often they're eating every couple of hours. And on top of that, they're often having a lot of fizzy drink. Every every drink they have is a glass of Coca-Cola or, you know, so they're often eating and drinking all day. So I do start them on 16-8 just for compliance, just to get them used to skipping some meals and taking some time without calories. And from there, I like to move them towards that one meal a day as quickly as possible. But I'd rather they fast 16 hours than none. And if you push them to one meal a day and they give up because it's too hard, then you've lost them. So I like to sort of keep them going with just that 16 if that's all they can tolerate. And I think you made a really valid point there that I hope people tuned in on and that a lot of times we don't realize it's not it's not just about what we've been eating. It's about what we've been drinking too. That was a very big light mold moment for me on certain drinks that I had. I, I'm not a big pop person, but, you know, flavored flavored beverages, or I always talk about how I was sipping on my latte all day and different things. So I think really helping people, you know, hone into that and say, oh, it's not just the food that I've been snacking on every two hours. It's that I'm constantly ingesting some form of a calorie or some form of a food or beverage that is raising my insulin. That's right, exactly. So when you have had these patients, what other non-scale victories have you seen with your patients throughout the years with intermittent fasting that you didn't see prior to implementing it? So one of the big things which I experienced myself was the reversal in high blood pressure. Most of the time when you come in with a high blood pressure, you put on a tablet. And actually, I find a lot of patients their blood pressure reduces with intermittent fasting. So, and it did for me. So I think that's a really big one because that keeps you away from medications that you don't need to have. But other things like more energy, a clearer head, better skin, better sleep. Some people don't necessarily lose a lot of weight on the scales with intermittent fasting, but they will drop a couple of dress sizes. Um, so their body's sort of recompositioning and, and changing, but the scales stay the same, which can be disheartening. But I always like to remind my patients that they're down a couple of dress sizes or so many inches off their waist. And that's a really big thing too. Well, I have to tell you that I have never had a waist. I always struggled. Like I never, I never in my adult years owned a belt and then came intermittent fasting and adding that to my tool belt. And guess what? I all of a sudden had a waist and it was amazing. It was amazing to me. And I, I could not credit it to anything else. Yes, I was working out. Yes, I was eating as well. You know, I was trying to eat healthy, but I had done those things before. Yeah. And also my arms had definition that I didn't have before. Even when I was thinner, I didn't, I never had arm definition. And I remember being like, wow, this is, this is great. I like this. <laughs> yes. It certainly, um, it certainly changes your body a lot, and I think for the better, absolutely. So part of your kind of your mission is to, as I see it, is to get the word out about intermittent fasting because I'm assuming that in many parts of the world and in especially in medical offices everywhere, 
intermittent fasting isn't being implemented and are, how are you kind of trying to get the word out about the differences you're seeing in your patients and in New Zealand, especially with type 2 diabetics? So um, since working in that first clinic, I've moved on and I now work in a couple of different clinics in South Auckland. And when I first started in those clinics, um, one clinic had heard about intermittent fasting, but hadn't implemented it. They didn't really have an advocate for it. They didn't probably know enough about it to put it into practice. The other clinic knew nothing of it. And so I spent a bit of time with that other clinic. We, I met with all the doctors. I talked them through what I've been doing for the previous couple of years and some of my results and um, case studies. And so educated them. And with the other clinic, they were all, they pushed go straight away because they knew about it, but they just weren't, you know, they just didn't have the right person. So I've been doing that for a while now. And Through that, I've got patients who go out and they talk to their specialists about it. So they certainly are leaking little bits of info through the medical system here in New Zealand, one doctor at a time. Um, But this last year, I did a presentation to the GPCME. So it's a doctor's conference down in the South Island of New Zealand. Um, And I presented there on fasting with some of my um, case studies and information. So that was to all doctors and nurses that were attending that conference. And this year, my goal is to put out a um, a submission into a journal article in a medical journal here in New Zealand, just to get some more info to a a wider audience. Oh, that is wonderful. And what are some of the, the key highlights that you share with them? So one of the big things I talked about was the fact that we've been treating type 2 diabetes wrong for so long. You know, that if your patients are needing more and more medication or more and more insulin to um, control their diabetes, they're actually getting sicker. And so I talked about the role of insulin and why we need to change the way we're treating them because we now can see the cause, not just the result of, um, of that insulin. So I talk a little bit about that. We talked about how fasting works and why it works. I talked about the clean fast. That's a really important factor in fasting. I know some people will have what's called a dirty fast where they might have cream in their coffee or they might have uh, a no calorie drink but actually those sweet flavors or food like flavors will rise your insulin and once your insulin's up you're not fasting anymore so we talk about that Um, and then I ran through some of my case studies for the doctors so they could see what progress we're making with patients in real life. Sarah, we talk to a lot of guests on this show that are intermittent fasters and they always mention how important the clean fast is and when you're explaining that, maybe I have a new listener today that that doesn't know what a clean fast is. And I know you kind of touched on it. How do you define a clean fast and how do you explain it to your patients? So I explain that if you're, you're either fasting or you're not. So um, any sweet flavors, any food-like flavors or fats, they will actually cause a what's called a cephalic phase insulin response. So your body's getting prepared for the food that's coming. In fact, some studies show that just swirling a sweet flavor in your mouth and discarding it, so not even taking that on board, will create that cephalic phase insulin release. So we talk about the idea of fasting is keeping that insulin as low as possible. And if you're spiking your insulin with sweet or food-like flavors, you're no longer fasting. Your insulin's up, 
you've broken your fast. So when I talk to my patients, I say to them, really, the only things you can have when you're fasting is water, black coffee, black tea, or plain green tea. And that's really about it. Plus, I guess, some prescribed medications and um, that sort of thing. But really, you're either fasting or you're not. So if you're fasting, you don't want to be having flavoured teas or, you know, sweet beverages because they are just breaking your fast. I love that. I think that explanation is so helpful because there are a lot of people who have heard about intermittent fasting and yet they haven't heard about the clean fast and the importance of that. As you've pointed out, that is just so critical for their success with IF. Absolutely. And in fact, I've got some patients who were fasting before they met me, but they weren't fasting clean. And when I switched them to a clean fast, the results were phenomenal. So things like the weight loss, the clearer head, the better energy, they didn't get that hunger that they used to get. So it just shows that actually it does make a big difference. You know, I never used to understand this this phrase that my grandpa said. And he used to say, eating makes me hungry. And, you know, I always think of him when I think of dirty fasting versus clean fasting. And I think he nailed it there is that when you are having beverages with cream in them and you think you're fasting or some nut milk or whatever that may be, it's actually making it harder not easier. And I think too many people think, oh, well, this is going to help me. This is going to make it easier. And I remember kind of thinking like that at first, like this is kind of a, a baby step into fasting when really what I find over and over and hear from so many people is that no, once they release that mindset, it actually made fasting much easier. They weren't white knuckling it as much. Absolutely. And that's, I think, the big thing, isn't it? Do you know, it's funny, I think back to my teenage years, I was a competitive horse rider. And often before a show, and I used to do shows most weekends, I wouldn't eat because we'd be up so early and I'd be nervous and I'd feel a little bit nervous. So I didn't want to eat. And I would often go all day without eating. And I would have lunch or whatever it was at about two o'clock in the afternoon after finishing my show. And when I went to university, I realized, well, I thought that actually I needed to change the way I look after myself. You know, breakfast is the most important meal and all of that. And I started having breakfast. And that is actually the exact time I started putting on weight. And I realized that back then I used to do intermittent fasting. It's just that, you know, I didn't name it as such. I cannot agree with you more. I love the line, quit snacking, you're not a toddler. <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, it's it's so true, but we have been taught we need to snack, we need to eat breakfast. And, and that that's the sad thing is that there are so many people out there today that think they are doing it right, that are trying to follow all the rules and, and they're doing what someone told them to do to be healthy. And yet they're showing up in your clinic and other people's clinics as pre-diabetic or type two. And it's, it's, there's nothing worse than when you think you're doing it right and it's still not working. You know, I think that's what's so sad. Yes, it is. And I think we've got a lot of people who do try and do things right. And like you say, they're just, it's, it's not working for them, but they, you know, they either feel a level of guilt, like maybe they're not doing as well as they should. But um, in fact, it's, it's not that at all. Correct. And I think that that's such an empowering thing to hear is that, hey, 
maybe you haven't been doing anything wrong. You just didn't have the right tools. And here are some new tools for your tool belt that are going to help you be successful. And that's what you're sharing with them. And I just think that is so exciting. So, Sarah, you have patients that come to you and you start them on a 16-8. Do you specify at that point in time about what they eat when they eat or exercise? No. So I actually don't touch my patients' diets at all. I started off just with the fasting. And over time, I found that, first of all, they were getting results and I couldn't tell you what they were eating. But also, you know, if you've got a patient who's morbidly obese and has been for years, they're diabetic, they live in a very poor suburb or a poor community where they can't afford, you know, the healthy foods or they can't get access to the lean cuts of meat, just get letting go of one meal a day plus 16 hours of sugary drinks will make a significant improvement in their health, regardless of what they do for that other eight hours. So no, I never touch their diet. I sort of tweak their fasting right to the end before I would say, okay, let's have a look at what you're eating. Because I find that they just get such good results without me touching their diet. And their preferences do change in time too. I have patients coming back and saying, you know, I used to eat pizza and pies for lunch and now actually I prefer a salad. So, you know, that happens too. But yeah, I don't touch their diet at all. And I think that's fascinating because I've some people tweak their diet first and then fall into fasting. Some people fast and then their preferences change. But I think that's even why this interview is even more powerful is that you could be a listener hearing this and go, wait, Sarah and Bet aren't talking about tweaking anything about what I'm eating right now. They're just telling me to start at a 16-8 and a clean fast. And oh, I think it kind of surprises people. Does it surprise some of your patients sometimes? Absolutely. I've got patients that sort of come back two weeks later and hop on the scales and they can't believe they've lost you know, four or eight pound because they, you know, they sort of eat what they want and they've just delayed their first meal. So yeah, it absolutely surprises people. What about exercise? Same thing? The same thing. I just focus on the fast. Um, Again, a lot of my patients are morbidly obese. And with that, a lot of the times comes things like osteoarthritis in the knees. A lot of them have gout, very painful condition in their feet. And even just getting up off the couch can be a challenge for some of these people. So I don't touch exercise either. Of course, you know, if they ask about it, I encourage it not for weight loss, but for health. Um, and later on down the track, I'll talk to them a bit about getting some movement in their daily life for their health. But it's never to do with weight loss. And um, and again, we just really focus on that fasting to start with. I think that's so important to hear, especially, you know, I think too often times, and I've been really guilty of this, Sarah, where when I want to lose weight, when I want to get healthier, quote unquote, my first step to do that is to just move. And I don't take a hard look at actually what I'm eating and not eating. And a friend of mine goes, well, bet you can't outrun your fork. And I'm like, that's right. You can't outrun your fork. And I think that this is so empowering for these people who already probably struggle with movement to say, hey, we'll get there. We might talk about the other health benefits of movement. But again, let's focus on the fast. Hey, friends, it's Bet. If you are enjoying today's podcast, I really hope you will join me every week 
for what I hope you find are inspiring interviews and bold content on topics like family and career and health. And can I also ask you a favor? Can you press that subscribe button and write a review if you like what you hear today? By doing those things, you are helping me get the word out. And I truly would be ever, ever so grateful. It also allows you to be the first to know when new content arrives. So please subscribe today. Now, let's get back to our guest. With your patients when they're a 16-8, where is kind of what you found is kind of a sweet spot? Or is there one? There sort of is for for our diabetics and those with, you know, morbid sort of obesity, health-related conditions, I really do try and push them to that one meal a day, so at least a 20-hour fast daily. Um, I just think they need that longer time with low insulin to burn through and clear out some of that sugar and, and lose some weight. Very few would I put on alternate day fasting because I find it's a big commitment for a lot of these people to fast all day one day and then eat the next. I find mentally that's a big challenge, especially if they are again coming from that eating every two hours. So um, 16 eights the start and the goal is OMAD or one meal a day. So the majority of my patients end up between a 20 and a 23 hour fast daily. Oh, that's great. And I know you've been fortunate to have really good reception from your other physicians, from, you know, your patients, but what have been some of the, I guess, pushbacks you have heard or people who have challenged you and and kind of how have you handled those things? Well, you know, I'm quite lucky and I talked to some friends about this. I haven't had a lot of pushback. I think because when I very first went forward to present it, I'd already had some great um, benefits in myself. So I'd already lost weight. I'd, my blood pressure was back to normal. I was feeling good. So I could sort of present it and say, well, look what I've just done in the last six months. Um, mm. I think, too, I always start with the science because you can't argue with the science. If someone comes to me and says, well, you've lost all this weight. How did you do it? And I say, well, I just fast immediately the walls go up, no one wants to talk to you, you're starving yourself, it becomes taboo. But actually, if I start with, well, actually, I've done a bit of research and what I found was it's all about the insulin. And I go through and talk about how high insulin means you can't access your stored fats. And if we you know, extend on our overnight natural fast that we're doing while we sleep a little bit longer through the morning, that insulin stays low longer and you start to access those stored fats for energy. And I talk about how, you know, our ancestors didn't eat every two hours. Um, often in my grandparents, they were farmers and they'd be up at five for milking the cows. They'd have breakfast at 8 a.m., um, lunch at 12, and then they'd have their dinner was finished by six. So they were naturally doing a 14 hour fast overnight every day. Whereas in our generation, we're up at six. On the way to work, we get a milky coffee. On, you know, we have morning tea, breakfast, lunch, afternoon tea, a snack on the drive home, dinner. We might then finish with another milky cup of tea and a cookie. So we're eating for 14 or 16 hours every day and not giving our bodies that time to, to rest. So I'm quite lucky. I don't get a lot of pushback. And I think by the time 
I started talking more about it, I was already working with patients and already seeing amazing results. So again, you can't argue with those results. Totally. And I love your point about kind of comparing how our ancestors ate or even our grandparents, they didn't have breakfast. Maybe breakfast was a black coffee or they had a really light dinner and they were fasting. And we are now so bombarded with snacks and constant food everywhere we go that our our mind really thinks, you know, we have all these triggers. Our mind thinks we go to the airport, we need to have snacks. We we drive somewhere. Oh, well, we better get a coffee. We better go through that drive-through. Oh, what are we going to do? Even I look at my kids. You know, I never packed a snack for school. Now they're like, oh, well, the kids need a morning snack and an afternoon snack and a, oh, they need a snack after school. And And I realize kids are different than adults. Their bodies are still growing. But the amount of of snacking that's encouraged and thought to be the healthy way is everywhere. It's just everywhere. It is. And it's funny you bring that up too because – I never, ever force-fed my children. You know, I wasn't the mother that said, you don't leave the table till your plate is clean. I was always very much of the thought that if you're hungry, you'll eat. There's nothing else. But if you're hungry, that's what's for dinner. And if you don't want it, that's okay. And when I started fasting, I realized that that was exactly how it should be for children, that actually sometimes they'll have two or three serves of dinner, and sometimes they'll have a bite. And either way, that's okay. And You know, I never get woken up at four in the morning with a child that's starving because they listen to their body and they eat to satiety. They eat what they need and they stop when they're full. It's so enlightening, I think, when you kind of realize that. And I've also realized that in my fasting journey is that it used to bother me when I had a day I was more hungry. I used to think, oh, what's wrong? Why am I so hungry today? And then you know what? Ironically, the next day, with no no forcing myself to not, I was just not as hungry that next day. And it was like the light bulb went off. It was like, oh, my body just needed a little bit more food yesterday. It wasn't that I was falling off the wagon. It wasn't that I was overeating. And But today, guess what? I need less food. And I couldn't always explain why or, or not. And I think that's how kids are too. Yes, absolutely. So Sarah, how about you? Do you kind of follow an OMAD or what's your kind of typical fasting window? So nowadays I sort of mostly do about a 20-hour fast. So I tend to break my fast, I don't know, it, it varies, I have to admit, but sometimes it's for morning tea. I'll have like some cheese and crackers and some fruit and then I'll have a main meal for lunch and then I'm done for the day. Um Other times I will break my fast with that main meal and then later on in the afternoon I might have a snack if I feel I need it. Um, But I do move it around, you know. I like hearing that because I like kind of sometimes having kind of a morning snack kind of appetizer and then kind of my lunch being my main meal. And some people will say, well, isn't that hard because you have kids and you're not eating dinner in front of them? But I haven't found that to be the case. And I find that I'm much more satiated and I I have had better results when I've kind of had that more midday window, whereas a lot of people prefer the evening window. And I think that's great. That just hasn't been my story. Yeah. I mean, I do move mine for the evenings 
sometimes. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, if we've got a barbecue at a friend's house for dinner, that's fine. I'll just sort of fast a bit longer on the Saturday and then and then open my window with a snack at the barbecue and have the main meal for dinner. And, you know, we were just camping for our Christmas holidays. It's summer here in New Zealand, so we're out camping. And I changed my window to an evening window so I could have a couple of glasses of wine with my friends when the kids went to bed. So I'd have dinner and then a couple of wines and I'd just fast all day the next day. So I'm very flexible with it now. But yeah, I do definitely prefer that sort of lunchtime uh, window. Well, I think that's so huge for people to hear because again, if anything's going to be a lifestyle, it's got to be something that works with you and your life. And that's exactly, you just explained how you handled it over vacation. I love that it just doesn't sound so rigid that, you know, you're living a normal life. And I think that that's why intermittent fasting is also so powerful is that, you know, we all have, we have, we all live life and we need something when it's a diet it's much harder to really live. You know, you're, you go on vacation, you feel like you're restricting, you can't do this, you can't do that. And I love how you gave that example of your camping trip. Yeah, and I actually talk to my patients a lot about that too. Um, I say to them, look, you know, if I was to prescribe you the traditional treatment for diabetes, you'd be eating salad and chicken every day. Whereas with fasting, yes, okay, you have to wait a bit longer, but you can go out and have a decent meal and you can even have a bit of dessert if that is what you feel like. So I think that makes it a little bit easier for patients as well because they don't have to focus so much on what they're eating. They just need to delay it by um, with the fasting. What other points do you feel are important for people to hear who may be new to intermittent fasting, who may be concerned that they're pre-diabetic? What are some other key points? What I'd like people to realize is, yes, to start with, it can be a little bit of a challenge. Not always. And in fact, I didn't find it that hard. I went from eating four or six meals a day to eating twice a day overnight. And I actually didn't struggle. But You can struggle a little, and I say just hang in there because in a couple of weeks, you will feel fantastic. You get this release of energy. You feel um, you don't need as much sleep, and you feel better rested with it. I think if people can just hang in there and realize that hunger is not an emergency, it does pass and it will go away, then that makes a difference. And if you can just hang in there for the first couple of weeks and persevere, then it's worth it. Oh, I love that piece of advice because I feel like when everyone's starting out, they kind of need to hear that because some of them, like you said, it's not as easy. And some of them have some interesting side effects. Like I remember, this isn't for everybody, but I remember my first few weeks, my stomach, I was, sometimes my stomach was a little bit like, what's going on here? What are you doing? It just didn't, it, it's like it hadn't figured this out. And then I felt great. But those first few weeks, I kind of did notice that little off feeling. And then a lot of it though, was just mental, like believing that I could not eat for a certain period of time. That was real that was probably the biggest hurdle for me initially. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And even things like um 
you know, you'd go to go to on a family drive somewhere or you'd be going away on holiday and we'd always pack snacks and or have some sweets in the car or something or we'd stop on the way for lunch. Whereas now I sort of think, oh, well, that's good. I don't have to bother with food. I'll just eat when we get there. So it changes your mentality a little bit. There's less dishes to do. I feel like I'm more present with the children when they're having dinner because I'm not having to eat. So I'm sort of able to sit and help them and talk to them about their day. You know, a lot of people ask about how I fast through their dinner time, but, you know, they don't it doesn't bother them and they know that I only eat when I'm hungry and I'm an adult and I'm not growing. So they don't, they don't even ask if I'm eating anymore, you know, and, and I'm very present with them and I can be there for them without worrying about what I'm doing with my meal. And I think you hit on two very important points is that if you are a busy person, a busy mom, a busy, you're busy in your job, if you want something to simplify your life, this is it in a lot of ways. And, and same with you. I, I find, you know, I work full time. I have six kids now, which is so weird to say out loud, six. Well, uh, but, um, I find it totally simplifies. I'm not doing all this food prep. And when I am not eating, like you said, I can be so much more present. Yeah. And I think that's important to, for your kids to see, I mean, they see me having great big meals and a dessert, but they also see that I can listen to my body. And if I'm not hungry, I don't eat. And I think that's a really important life school and one that I treasure for them. And that's why I never push dinner or anything on them. They either eat or they don't. I provide the healthy options and they choose whether they eat it or not. And and my kids have a really good relationship with food. So I hope that that continues throughout their life. I think that's wonderful advice because that's what we all want for our children. It really, at the end of the day, is we want them to have a healthy relationship with food. So, Sarah, where can people find out more about what you're doing, your research? How could, how do they connect with you? Where do they find you? They can have a look at my website, which is intermittentfasting.co.nz. Um, And from there, they can flick me a message um, on my contacts page. I keep that updated with some of my more recent work, um, you know, and in time when I get a publication out, that'll be on there. They can email me at nzintermittentfasting at gmail.com. I do run a Facebook group, but it is only for New Zealanders. So I keep it, I sort of want to keep it just for Kiwis because I keep it really tight because a lot of my patients on there, I sort of have this level of responsibility to make sure they're getting accurate information and make sure that they're safe on that page. So I keep it just for Kiwis, but um, that is on Facebook, which is um, NZ Intermittent Fasting, Freedom from Diet. So if there's any Kiwis listening that want to join up, they're welcome to. But, yeah, otherwise just flick me a message on my um, website. I always like to end the interview with kind of what is your piece of bold advice? And I would love if your bold advice was to anyone who has a family member that is a diabetic, anyone who might be being told they're showing signs of prediabetes, what's a bold piece of advice you'd like to share with them today? So I think um, for all of those people, they absolutely need to start fasting. and. There's very few people I wouldn't put on a fasting schedule. So um, 
people with a history of a diagnosed eating disorder, if you're pregnant or breastfeeding, elderly and frail elderly, I wouldn't put on a fasting schedule. And of course, children and adolescents who are growing. But outside of that scope, there's very few people I wouldn't encourage to fast because outside of weight loss and diabetes reversal, there are so many benefits with regard to longevity and heart health. Um, there's even some studies around dementia and Alzheimer's improves with intermittent fasting. So look to everyone listening, start fasting, have a look into things. If you are not medical, um, have a read of Jim Stevens' books, Delay, Don't Deny, or Fast, Feast, Repeat, because they are fantastic reads. Or otherwise, if you're more medical-minded, you might want to look at Dr. Fung's books, The Obesity Code or The Diabetes Code. But start fasting because it is just so beneficial. Well, Sarah, this interview has been so inspirational, and I know people are going to take away some new tools for their tool belt. So thank you for your time, and I just have loved connecting with you today. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening today. For more information, you can find me on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and my new website, betlucas.com. And remember, friends, be you boldly. The world needs you.